If you will, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. President Ronald Reagan told a story one time of a farmer who was able to take a piece of very bad land and transform it into a successful farm. And he was so proud of his crops that he invited his pastor to come and see. And the pastor was impressed. He said, that's the tallest corn I've ever seen. Praise the Lord. And as he went through the, the farm uh, and the crops, he, he said that about every crop, praising the Lord and thanking God for, uh, for all of the produce, all of the harvest. And finally, the farmer just got fed up and couldn't take it anymore. And he said, Reverend, I wish you could have seen this place when the Lord was doing it by himself. <laughs> we love success and victories and accomplishments. We love winning. And a lot of times we take the credit for it. You've probably heard Vince Lombardi's quote, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. But I love what one author said, victory, there's nothing quite like it. But I believe that as, as exciting as some victories can be, they also hold a serious danger. We may fool ourselves into believing that our success was obtained solely by our own merit and strength often forgetting that we are recipients of God's matchless favor and grace. Like the farmer in President Reagan's story, a lot of times we're very proud of our accomplishments. We, we want the credit and the praise and the glory for our victories. It's maybe one of the most difficult things for proud human beings to do is to humble themselves and realize that we don't deserve the credit for our successes and our victories, but rather God does. And that's hard because we like getting credit. We like getting praised. This morning we'll see Saul's first test as king of Israel. And he's going to pass with flying colors. And he comes away from a battle completely victorious. He will crush the enemy. But even after the victory, he's humble. And he gives God the ultimate credit for the victory. And there's a lesson that we can all learn from that this morning. So in the first three verses we'll read in just a second. If you remember last chapter, Saul was publicly presented as king, and then everyone went home. Really not much had changed yet. Uh, in these verses, however, we do read about a threat to the nation of Israel, and it'll be Saul's first test as king. It's exactly why Israel wanted a king, to have somebody to lead them in battle. And so now Saul's going to have a chance to, to prove his worth, so to speak. So look at the first three verses of uh, 1 Samuel 11. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. If you look down, we won't read the verse, but if you want to skip down to chapter 12 and verse 12, it seems that this is not the first time that Nahash the Ammonite has oppressed an Israelite city. Uh, this is something he has done before because... His oppressions were part of the reason Israel begged for a king. We learned down there in 12, 12. And so this time Nahash, whose name means snake, maybe that's fitting, 
he encamps against this Israeli city, Jabesh Gilead, and it's a city that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Jabesh Gilead is not in mainland Israel. It's in that Transjordan side, and these Israelites don't want anything to do with Nahash. They do not want to fight him, and so they very cowardly say, make a covenant with us and we'll serve you. Okay, just We don't want anybody to die. We don't want to fight, but we will serve you. We'll be your slaves. Let's just make a treaty. And so instead of fighting their enemy, risking death, they, they're ready to surrender and become slaves. And that, that slavery would have involved uh, paying taxes and tribute to Nahash uh, and, and no telling what else. And Nahash is willing to make the deal with them on one condition, right? He says, that sounds good as long as I can thrust out your right eyes. Whoa. That might not have been the kind of treaty that the Jabeshites were, were thinking about. Um, why would Nahash present this? What would be the advantage to him? Well, there are at least two advantages of having slaves that were one-eyed. One is that the men would still be able to work. They could still farm. They could still do agricultural tasks, still do things to make money so they could send tribute and tax money to Nahash. They wouldn't be you know, completely uh, robbed of any, of any good things they could do like that. But a second reason is that it would, it would squelch any rebellion. Because if you have one eye, you're not going to be a very good archer. If you have one eye, you're not going to be a very good soldier. Because your depth perception is off. Uh, you don't have the field vision that you need to be a good warrior. And so he could have slaves that can work, but they can't fight back. So it's perfect for Nahash. Um, and not only would it benefit him greatly, but it would also be just an absolute shame to the Israelites. Because they have a city who is in slavery to another man that's not a Jew, he's, a, he's an Ammonite, and, and their right eyes are, are, are thrusted out. It would be shameful for them. And so that, the loss of their eyesight would be a constant symbol of that servitude to Nahash and that, uh, that shame and that reproach. And surprisingly, in verse 3, the men of Jabesh-Gilead actually agree to this on one condition that they make. Let us ask if we can have reinforcements. Give us one week to see if any of our brothers and sisters, uh, Israelites from across the Jordan River, if they'll come to help us. Just give us one week. And if they don't, we'll agree to those terms. I, I, ouch. I, I don't know if I would have answered that way if I was the Jabeshites or not. And we may wonder why we'll see that Nahash obviously agrees to these terms. Why would Nahash agree to give them a week? Why not just take them out right then? He probably had his reasons. Yeah. A couple might be that he probably thought nobody would come to help. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit why in a, in a minute. Um, one reason, them being on the other side of Jordan, uh, they're kind of further away from the other Israelite tribes. Another reason was that he, he probably thought even if they did, he could be victorious anyway. And sending this uh, SOS signal out would just spread his fame among Israel and, and kind of broadcast that shame that the Jabeshites may have coming upon them anyway. So for, for whatever reason, he allows them to do this. And so Jabesh Gilead was given one week to try and summon help. You know, will anybody come to her aid? And if we uh, remember and learn a little bit about, a, about the history of this city, this story is really going to come to life. In Judges 19 through 21, which kind of is a story that I've mentioned a few times as we've started learning about King Saul, there was a civil war that started between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel, the other tribes, because of the atrocities of one Benjamite city. If you remember, that city happens to be Gibeah, which is King Saul's hometown. 
And so this civil war began, and the strife was such a big deal uh, between the tribe of Benjamin and the other tribes, is that the rest of the Israelites swore an oath not to give any of their daughters to Benjamites as, as wives. And after several battles, Benjamin suffered a major defeat, and then the Israelites started feeling bad. They started feeling compassion because this was a civil war. The, the people from Benjamin are their flesh and blood, their, their brothers. And so they started feeling bad, but how could they help Benjamin rebuild the tribe and reproduce since they've promised to withhold their daughters? What are we going to do? We swore this oath. And so what they did was this. Someone asked the question, was there any city that did not answer the call to fight against Benjamin? Was there any city that refused to fight? Word was sent throughout all of Israel for the tribes to gather and fight against Benjamin. And there was one city that did not respond to the call to fight. I bet you can guess what city that was. Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead did not answer the call to fight. They refused to send soldiers. And so for punishment, or as punishment for not responding to this call, the Israelites then went and attacked more of their brothers, the people in Jabesh Gilead. And so you had a kind of a second civil war going on between that city and the rest of Israel. And as, as atrocious as that would have been, they also took 400 young women of Jabesh Gilead and gave those women to the Benjamites as wives because the Jabesh Gileadites had not sworn that oath to, to withhold their daughters since they didn't come in the first place. And so kind of knowing all that, now we've got Jabesh Gilead, the city that didn't respond to the call to fight. They're sending out their own call for help. How, how do you think that might work out for them? We might assume not bad, it's going to end up being okay, but maybe that's because there's a king now who happens to be from what tribe? The tribe of Benjamin, the tribe they didn't fight against. So kind of understanding some of that history just really makes this kind of come to life and mean a lot more. So this cowardly city is now sending out a call for help when they wouldn't help when the call went to them. And in verse 4 through 6, when Saul hears the news, though, he's motivated to action. Look at verse 4 through 6. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? They told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. It tells us here that Saul came after the herd out of the field, and it's worth pointing out what he's doing here. He's still just a, a herdsman, just a farmer, just a, working with the cattle and the donkeys. Um, he's been anointed as king by Samuel. He's been presented as king to the people there last chapter. Uh, but again, nothing major has really changed yet in his life. He's still at home in Gibeah working with livestock, which is exactly how we met him, right? Looking for his dad's donkeys. And he's kind of doing the same thing again. I know he has the, that group of valiant men that went back home with him, but he's still doing the same old chores, even though he's anointed as king. And when he comes back in from the fields, he heard the emotional cry of the people. And uh, what's going on? You know, what's the matter? Why is everybody crying and wailing? What, what's happened? And when he was told the situation... His reaction was quite different from the people. We're not told that he wept, that he wailed, that he, that he cried, but that his anger was kindled greatly. We're told that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. God's Spirit rushed forcefully upon Saul, just like he did with Samson. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago that Samson and Saul are the only two men in the Bible in which the Spirit's interaction is described like this, that it's this forceful rushing upon them. And that happens when, when Saul hears this news and he is angered. The people were weeping like it was a funeral, but now Saul responds like a king who is angered and hurting for his subjects. He's very angry that his Jewish brothers and sisters are being threatened with oppression and servitude. And he's now their king. He's angry about it. You know, anger can be one of the most terrible and destructive forces in this whole world. James wrote that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But Paul told the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. So it's not necessarily that anger itself is wrong or bad. The real issue is what makes you angry. Why do you become angry? You know, if we get angry just because someone cuts us off on the interstate, I know none of y'all have ever done that. If we're angry just because our waiter doesn't bring the order correctly, if we're angry just because something doesn't go our way, that's the anger of man. That anger does not produce the righteousness of God. It's destructive. It's sinful. It's completely anti-Christian. As Christians, we're to be gentle people, patient people, loving and kind. But there is an anger that is not sinful. It's an anger against sin. It's an anger against injustice. It's an anger and a zeal for God's glory, for God's people. Nothing was wrong with Saul's anger here. God's glory was being mocked. God's people were being threatened, and it angered him. Some of you may have already thought about this. It's similar to when Jesus went into the temple. And he saw that the temple of God was more like a Walmart on Black Friday than it was a house of prayer or a house of worship. And it angered him. He, clean, he cleansed the temple. He made a whip and he drove out the livestock and the money changers and he cleaned his father's house. And sometimes we call Jesus' actions and feelings righteous indignation. And I think that's a good way to describe Saul here. It is a righteous anger against the oppression of an enemy upon the people of God. And so he's now the king as well. And his subjects are being threatened. And so if you look in verse 7 and 8, King Saul sends out a call for soldiers. It's a pretty strong call. And people, overspond, uh, people will respond in an overwhelming way. Look at verse 7 and 8. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. We talk about a response. I mentioned earlier the link between this story and the events in Judges 19 through 21, that civil war. And here's another connection between the two stories. In Judges, how the men of Israel were alerted to the atrocities of Gibeah and were called to war was in a similar manner. The, there was a man who cut up the corpse of his concubine and sent those pieces throughout Israel. It's absolutely 
disgusting to us. But that's how he did it. And now here in Judges, or in 1 Samuel, Saul kind of does a similar thing. He takes two oxen and cuts them up into pieces, and he sends their pieces throughout Israel, warning that if you don't come to fight, if you don't come to help, then this will happen to your oxen. That's like telling people, I'm taking your money from you if you don't come and fight. Oxen were very valuable during this time. Livestock, it was their livelihood. It was how they farmed. It was how they, they got meat and everything. And so Saul, uh, Saul threatens to take away your livelihood if you do not come and fight. And it says the fear of the Lord fell upon the people. The fear of the Lord fell upon them. 330,000 soldiers responded to this call, which is the second largest army ever recorded for Israel between the books of Genesis and 2 Kings. That's a lot of soldiers, 330,000. And it says they feared God. Saul was now God's anointed. Samuel was God's prophet. And they were warned of the consequences of dismissing this. And maybe the people remembered what happened to Jabesh Gilead when they didn't respond to the call to fight in Judges. And so fear motivated these people to obedience. Fear led them to obedience, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. What did Solomon write in Ecclesiastes chapter 12? Fear God and what? Keep His commandments. Keeping His commandments is obedience. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear and obedience do go together. Sometimes we may not, not like to think of it that way, but fear and obedience do work together. Parents, when you ask your child to clean your room, do they do it every time just because they love you and want to please you? Or maybe sometimes do they clean their room because they know there's discipline that comes if they don't, and they don't want to have to face that punishment. There's a little fear there. I was a kid once. I know, I know, I know why children obey sometimes. Fear and obedience do work together. Now, love is a higher motivator. Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Better to be obedient because we love, but being obedient out of fear is not bad. We should have a reverential fear of God that aids our obedience. These people had that. They feared the Lord, and so they obeyed, and they answered the call. And in verse 9 and 10, we'll see two messages that are delivered. The first is a message to the men of Jabesh-Gilead that helps on the way, and the second is a message from those men to Nahash, tricking him into thinking that nobody was coming and that they would surrender the next day. So look at verse, verse 9 and 10. They said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. I bet they were glad. Verse 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And that's obviously what they said to Nahash and that Ammonite army. Not only was that what we might call disinformation in verse 10, it was designed to make Nahash let down his guard. Uh, there's some irony in their words as well. That phrase, all that seems good to you, literally means you can do whatever seems good in your eyes. And what was his threat to the people of Jabesh Gilead? To thrust out their right eye. And so now they tell him, tomorrow we'll surrender and you do what's ever good in your eyes. Knowing that they have help coming the next day. 
Um, that phraseology about your eyes also links, again, the story between Judges and, and this story. Because at the end of Judges 21, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So verse 11, the time comes for the surprise attack. How will this newly crowned king Saul lead his people into the battle? Will he be the king they've begged for? Look at verse 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the hosts in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. Saul divided his huge army into three companies, which was a great strategic move. He also attacked during the night. The morning watch was any time between 2 and 6 a.m. Okay? So he is a, he's attacking from different directions with these different companies. Um, he's attacking at a time when Nahash and his army would have been asleep or perhaps even still celebrating because what the Jabesh Gilead said, tomorrow we'll surrender. So there, there's no reason for the Ammonites to be alert, to be on guard, to be looking for something. It's just an easy night as a soldier for them. Sleeping, celebrating, definitely not ready for battle. And when King Saul's army came, they were so dominating that... Even if an Ammonite fled and was able to flee, he was fleeing all alone. You didn't even have two Ammonite soldiers fleeing together. It was an absolute victory for Saul and for the Israelites, just absolutely dominating. When God's people are united, great things can happen. When God's people obey God and when, they, when they're united in their, in their efforts... Great things can be accomplished. And so King Saul is now battle-tested. And he is beyond victorious. And after this great victory, some Israelites remembered, you know what, I don't think everybody liked King Saul when he was presented as king. Weren't there some men who despised him? And if you remember, look back at the end of, of chapter 10, verse 27. This is after Saul was presented to all of Israel. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Look at verse 12 through 13 now back in chapter 11. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day. For today, the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Now those men who didn't like Saul looked so foolish. And the other Israelites remembered that, and they want to punish them by executing them. I mean, this was treason. You didn't accept our king? And he's now proven himself to be a worthy warrior and a very great leader. Kill him. We can put an end to that right now. You talk about uniting Israel under King Saul. Let's kill these men who weren't uh, supportive of him in the first place. And after this great victory, we'll move on. Saul's response in verse 13 is just so perfect. It's very magnanimous, very compassionate, very humble. It's probably not what we would expect from King Saul if you know the whole story of King Saul. 
But I've said before that we'll see some good things in King Saul's life, and this is arguably the very best thing we'll see. He says, today, the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. Not only is he merciful to those who didn't support his kingdom and his kingship, he said nobody's losing their life today in Israel. But his reasoning for that mercy is even better. The reason he says nobody's going to lose their life is because this is not Saul's victory. It's not time to eradicate anyone who didn't support me. I didn't do this. This was God's victory. God was the one who saved Israel that day. One author says, Saul refuses to mar the joy of victory by personal retaliations. I really like that. What a moment for Saul. If there was ever a time when you could stand up and you know, poke your chest out and brag about what you did and what you accomplished, it would have been right then. He could have taken all the glory, all the praise, all the credit. Look at what great king you have now. If you follow me, this will happen every battle. Let's kill the men who didn't support me. I'm the greatest king you could ever ask for. Instead, he's very humble. And he gives God all the credit for the victory. And it is a very short statement. Today the Lord has brought salvation. But it's an extremely humble, truthful, and powerful one. And one that we can take and learn a lot from in our own lives. There's a legendary football coach named Paul Brown. And the Cleveland Browns are named after him. And he said, when you win, say nothing. When you lose, say less. As Christians, we should appreciate the humility wrapped up in that statement. Knowing that when we win, when we have a victory or success, we are in no position to brag about ourselves. When you win, say nothing. When we win, whatever that may mean at whatever time in your life it happens, we don't deserve the credit or the praise God does. And some people may say, yeah, but it was my talent that did this. It was my hard work that did this. It was my ability, my strength. I worked hard, just like the farmer. I worked hard to make these crops. Okay, maybe your talent was involved. Maybe it was your ability, your strength, your hard work. Maybe they were involved in the victory. But where did your talent, your ability, your strength, your health come from in the first place? It was a gift from God. So if and when you win, say nothing of yourself, but instead be like King Saul and be quick to give all the glory, all the credit, all the praise to God. Every victory, every success, every good thing we have in life is because of the mercy, love, grace, compassion of God. James said every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. You know, the greatest victory we have in our life is over an enemy that we could never defeat on our own. Just like the Jabeshites that needed someone else to fight for them, we needed someone to fight the enemies of sin and death for us. It was a victory we couldn't win. We couldn't fight it. We're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. It's a battle we could not win, but God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and He fought and won the battle for us. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus won a battle we had no business even fighting for. We'd already lost. But he responded to the call, so to speak. God sent him and he said, I'll go, Father. And since our salvation is a gift, it's not something that we earned, but something graciously given to us and to all who repent and trust Jesus, it's nothing we can brag about. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was all because of God's love. And so guess who deserves all the credit and all the praise and all the glory? God. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. Very famous verses. He says, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. If it was something we worked for, then we could brag about it. But it wasn't what you worked for. It was what God gave you. And so he gets all the glory, all the credit, and all the praise. The greatest victory in your life was produced by God. And so the only thing that you can brag about is the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want something to brag about? Brag about what Jesus did for you. Brag about what God's grace and love and mercy has done in your life. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm praying for you today that today will be that time. And let's be people who speak of victories and successes as blessings instead of accomplishments. And let's give God all the praise and all the glory for every victory we have in our life. Would you stand and let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the successes and the victories that we have in our life, Lord. And we pray that you will uh, just help us to be humble about them and give you all the praise and the credit for the blessings we have in this life. Help us to be uh, reminded of all the good things that you give us, to be thankful people. And we thank you most of all for what Jesus did for us on the cross, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.